So if a schlemiel is somebody who goes through life spilling soup on people, a schlemazel is a person who keeps getting the soup spilled on them. And Abraham was a schlemazel. That's how the pastor and novelist Frederick Buechner starts off his story about Abraham, as told in the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And to say that Abraham was a schlemazel is another way of saying that he lived in a long shadow. Every time he took a step forward, it was like he was taking two steps backward. And the life that he had was definitely not the life that he dreamed that he would. And even when God arrived to to pull him out of that shadow by his promises, he resisted it, partially. Um, He struggled with God arriving and bringing hope into his shadowy, schlamazel-like existence. He struggled to trust. And if you feel like a schlamazel, that person that you just keep getting the soup of life spilled on you, then... The story of Abraham and Sarah is for you. And if you don't feel like a shamazel, then it's still for you, because one day you might, and you probably will. So Abraham's story, it begins in the book of Genesis when he's the ripe age of 75, and God arrives, to him when, uh, God arrives and speaks to him when he's living in a city called Ur. It's about 300 miles, kilometers actually, southwest of the modern town of Baghdad. And God arrives to make this extravagant promise. He says, I'm going to give you a land of your own. I'm going to give you descendants more than you can imagine. I'm going to bless the whole world through your family. All you have to do is leave the place where you're living and go to the land that I'm going to show you. And it it seems amazing. It seems far-fetched. And I'm sure that they talked about it over, over a meal that evening. Should we do it? They decide to step out in faith and do that to leave Ur, to go to this land that God had promised them. And so they go with their family, with Abraham's brother's family and all of their stuff, and they make the difficult 800-mile journey from Ur down to the land of Canaan in modern Israel and Palestine. But then the soup really starts spilling on them. Because what happens is they arrive in this land that supposedly was going to be great, but there's a famine, a really bad famine. And so they're forced to be refugees in Egypt. And as they're traveling to Egypt, Abraham starts to get worried because he's got a really beautiful wife. I mean, Sarah's like former Miss, Miss Mesopotamia kind of beautiful. And he says, if I, if I say you're my wife, they're going to take you and they're going to kill me. So let's say that you're my sister. Let's do that. Horrible idea. But they do that. And um, sure enough... The, the Egyptian princes are very attracted by Sarah, and she ends up in Pharaoh's home, the Pharaoh himself. And he takes her in, and they, they shower Abraham with gifts because, you know, he's her brother, supposedly. Uh, but then there's a plague that hits the Pharaoh's household, and he figures out that it's because they had lied, that Sarah is actually Abraham's wife. And he gets very angry, but fearing that something worse would happen to him, he, he drives them out instead of just killing them on the spot. And so here they are, journeying back to Canaan. And Abraham's brother decides to settle in what looks like the really nice land, so the fertile river basin land. And Abraham gets kind of the infertile high country. Um, Buchner puts it this way. He says, 
Abraham was left with a scrub country around Dead Man's Gulch. Schlamazel. This is his story so far. You know, in the meantime, God is reiterating these promises to him over and over about having land and descendants and fame and the good life. And Abraham just doesn't see any evidence of it yet, particularly because they're childless. And if God's promise is going to come true, they need a child. So he's continuing to feel like a shamazel. And in his good moments, Abraham is clinging to God's promises. And that's driving him forward. But then there's moments where he's really doubting that this is actually going to come true. So like in Genesis 15, Abraham expresses his doubts to God saying, you've given me no children. So a servant in my household will will be my heir. And the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir. A son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Took him outside and he said, look up at the sky, look at the stars. If you can count them, count them. He said, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed, he really did. And God considered him righteous for doing so. But man, there were moments where he struggled to believe, where that was, it was really hard for him to cling to that promise. I mean, especially as the years crawled by. And I mean years crawled by. And eventually, after some of those years had gone by, Abraham and Sarah decided to take matters into their own hands. So they're like, look, we can't have kids together. So Abraham, why don't you, why don't you have a kid with my servant, my maidservant, Hagar? So they go that direction, and the plan works. Hagar becomes pregnant, but things only get worse. Because once Hagar, Hagar is pregnant, she, she gets angry and starts hating Sarah. So they're kind of fighting for Abraham. And then Sarah gets angry at Abraham. And then Abraham says, well, why don't you just kick her out? And so she kicks her out and basically leaves Hagar to die in the desert. I mean, this is... Like just one big, ugly soap opera shlamazel mess that they're in. So from that point, fast forward a decade, a decade, 25 years it's been since Abraham Abraham received that initial promise. And in Genesis 17, God appears again, and he reiterates that same promise. He says, I will bless her, Sarah, and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Now, up to this point in the story, it seems like Abraham has held it together pretty well. He's struggled, but he's held it together. But here he he snaps. And it says, Abraham fell face down and he laughed. And he said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And it's important here just to pause and, and recognize there's different kinds of laughter, right? There's the, the kind of diplomatic chuckle where you're in this conversation that you're really not interested in, but you have to show your interest. And so you're, it's kind of the struggling boat engine laugh. <laughs> okay, that's not what this is. Um, then there's the, the almost out of control, like painful and in your belly kind of laughter when something is genuinely hilarious. 
I just had this on Friday night, actually. I, I went to my wife's uh, Christmas party for her work, and it was a very kind of serious, subdued event. And at one point, the leader of the event was going around and asking people, what is your most memorable Christmas gift? And it was all very, very serious, like a doll set my grandfather built for me. Oh, yeah. Um, and all of a sudden, somebody says, well, it wasn't the best gift, but the most memorable one was when I received the kitten with cancer. And like, it, it wasn't supposed to be funny. And no, and no one laughed except for her husband, who just was like shaking with laughter. I don't know, because I think maybe he gave her the kitten or whatever. But you weren't, and then I caught his eye, and I lost it. So we lost it, and I was sitting on the table with all these seasoned board members, and I was crying, and I was like, I'm not supposed to be laughing at this. So it was, you know, the kind of laughter that's, that can be horrible but wonderful at the same time. That's not what's going on with Abraham here. Uh, then there's the, this is too good to be true kind of laugh that starts with laughing but really kind of ends up into squeaking or screeching. Like, oh my goodness, this is amazing, I can't, I want it, you know. And you can't really understand what they're I won't ever do that on stage again, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> there's that. And then there's, there's a scoffing kind of guffaw kind of laughter that sounds like you got punched in the stomach, like, <laughs> yeah, right. Now, some people suggest that what, when Abraham laughs, it's this is too good to be true kind of laugh that ripples through all of his questions and, and is combined with his falling face down before God and worshiping him. Well, I'm not so sure. Maybe a little bit of that is mixed in, but uh, the way I read this, this is the, this is the scoffing guffaw kind of laughter. Um, the, yeah, I mean, first of all, we're too old. <laughs> and second of all, I'm a shlomazel. You should know that, God. Good things don't happen to me like this. And God doesn't rebuke Abraham for that. That's, that's the amazing thing for me. He, he says something like, I know you're old, I know you feel like a shamazel, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son. He just re- reiterates the promise again. And you will call him Isaac, which means son of laughter. So he's saying, you laugh, but this is going to happen. I promise. But actually a couple months later, Sarah laughs at this promise. And, and this time it's pretty unmistakable what kind of laughter it is. That it's this scoffing kind of laughter because it's, a, it's in the heat of the day and Abraham and Sarah are, are having some kind of siesta in their tent. And these guys come out of nowhere, out of the desert. And as it was the custom in the day, Abraham runs out and he offers them water and refreshment and food and rest. He's like, come here by this tree and rest. And as Sarah is making food for them in the tent, Abraham starts to engage in conversation with these visitors. And almost immediately he realizes these are no ordinary guests because one of them says, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him, and Abraham and Sarah were already very old and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and my husband is old, will I now have this pleasure? In other words, Sarah is is laughing to herself saying, look, I'm way past my hot flash days and Abraham doesn't have anything going on either. So (laughs) seriously, this ain't happening. Like physically, this is impossible. So she laughs. 
but one of the visitors in the text identifies as Yahweh, the Lord himself, says, then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah was afraid. So she lied and said, I didn't laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. And Sarah laughed because she didn't believe it. And you know what? That is completely understandable, at least for me. I mean, 25 years have gone, have gone by. I mean, for goodness sakes, of course she didn't believe let alone all of the, the physical impossibilities of this. Um, so yeah, it's understandable. Because they were in Canaan, and that was part of God's promise. They were relatively well off. But without kids, I mean, this, this promise was not going to come to, to fruition. And so it seemed ridiculous to them. And you know, as it turns out, that is a pretty common response. A pretty common response when God arrives and speaks, or promises, or commands... And that's what we've been talking about in this series, Long Shadow, is that we've been looking at how our lives cast this long shadow, and it could be a combination of things or one large looming thing in your life, anything from, from your upbringing, your socioeconomic situation, uh, your, your health, your relational difficulties. It could be something very specific, like infertility, uh, or it could be shame, it could be some kind of sin that you cannot conquer or, or unbelief itself. And we want to get away from those things. We want to sever ourselves from, from that long shadow so it's not part of our existence anymore, but it follows us and it follows us. And then when God and if God arrives to make a promise or to assure you that that shadow isn't, isn't your ultimate reality... You know, we don't always react with, with joy or with trust or with obedience or with childlike faith because that shadow looms so large and it's just our reality. So sometimes we hide like Adam and Eve uh, because we're full of shame or we're afraid. We don't know what's going to happen and God can be trusted. Sometimes we laugh and scoff like a Abraham and Sarah because what God says or who God is just seems ridiculous. How can that be true? And I am sure that many of you can identify with Abraham and Sarah in their, in their laughing, in their, their scoffing even. And most likely you haven't heard such a, a specific and covenantal huge promise like God made to Abraham and Sarah at this unique moment in history but there are many other situations in which you, you may have reacted in a similar kind of way. So, for example, maybe, maybe you've been praying for healing for years and nothing is happening. And, and so you hear about the power of prayer and you just want to say, yeah, right. Or maybe you've been struggling with not being married or being married. Or maybe you're struggling with not having kids or having kids. And you hear this promise that God is working everything together for your good. And, 
everything in you wants to scoff at that because it's not good. It doesn't seem good. How could good come from, from this? And so maybe you're in a place where you don't have a job or your job is sucking the life out of you or you're bored by the, by the daily grind. And we, when you hear that you're meant to do everything for the glory of God and, and with joy that God gives you, you just think, yeah, I mean, I wish. Or maybe your struggles are more intellectual. So you hear about things like we're celebrating in Advent, God becoming human or, or physical resurrection from the dead or um, Jesus returning one day to make all things new. So these, these things revealed in the Bible and you hear about them and you just think, yeah, that's ridiculous. How can anyone believe that? How can I believe that? So whatever it is, I think that the story of Abraham and Sarah can be really encouraging to you if you're in that place. Uh, Because, well, for one, this isn't something that only atheists or agnostics do. And you might be in that position, but you're not alone. I mean, this is something that this, this struggle to believe, this um, even maybe propensity to scoff at, at God or the things of God, this is a struggle for those who believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who's revealed in Jesus. And because we need to remember that God, when God arrived and delivered his promise to Abraham, Abraham believed. And he believed with everything that he, he is. And God considered him righteous because of it. And then later, when God repeated the promise, after some years had gone by, Abraham scoffed. And so did Sarah. And so the point is, you may believe, and you may be, have been in that place for years, yet still experience times when there's a particular promise, or a particular truth, or a particular hope, that just seems way far-fetched to you. That's, that can't be true. And you react like Abraham and Sarah did, even when that particular promise or truth or hope is beautiful, beyond description. You, you can still have that reaction. So wherever you are on the spectrum of faith, I think there's incredible hope in this story and encouragement because despite their struggle to believe, despite Sarah laughing in the shadows, laughing in God's face, about his promise and then lying about it. What's encouraging to me is that the Newer Testament presents both Abraham and Sarah as models for what faith should look like. Isn't that remarkable? These are heroes of the faith. So I want to read a couple passages that give us that perspective. So, for example, in Paul's letter to the Romans, he he writes about Abraham, when everything was hopeless... Abraham believed anyway, deciding to live not on the basis of what he saw he couldn't do, but on what God said he would do. And so he was made father of a multitude of peoples. God himself said to him, you're going to have a big family, Abraham. And Abraham didn't focus on his own impotence and say it's hopeless. His hundred-year-old body can never father a child. Nor did he survey Sarah's decades of infertility and give up. He didn't tiptoe around God's promise asking cautiously skeptical questions. He plunged into the promise and came up strong, ready for God, sure that God would make good on what he had said. And then in the book of Hebrews, there's a similar kind of observation about Sarah. By faith, barren Sarah was able to become pregnant, old woman as she was at the time, because she believed the one who made a promise. She believed the one who made a promise 
would do what he said. Now you might be like, wait a second, that seems to kind of contradict the story of Genesis, that they, they had this struggle to believe and that they scoffed. But we need to remember, they struggled to believe, but they believed. They held on tenaciously to their belief over decades of not seeing that being fulfilled. So they struggled, but they never gave up hope. They never flat out rejected God's promise. They laughed at it. They thought it was ridiculous at times, but they didn't give up hope because they knew who God is. They knew that God is powerful, that God, when he says something, he's going to do it. Even if you don't see it in your lifetime, even if the truth is difficult to internalize at times, even if what God has said and what he's promised is just really hard to live by at times. So given all of that, I love how at least this stage of Abraham and Sarah's story ends. Sarah did become pregnant, as the story goes. She did give birth to a son. They named him Isaac. And that gave way to laughter of a whole different kind. Sarah was 90. Abraham was 100. And Sarah says, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this is going to laugh with me. She added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yeah, I have borne him a son in his old age. So their story had a lot of disbelieving laughter in it, and it ended in this joyful, probably some serious belly laughter that happened here. See that that actually happened. But, you know, if, you're, if you have a fair share of, the, of that disbelieving kind of laughter in your life, the scoffing, it's encouraging to me. Abraham and Sarah would have understood. They lived it. And... I really long for you to experience friendships with people who really get that, who, with whom you can be really honest about that and, and not be judged or kind of shoved out. And I hope Warehouse is that kind of community for you where, where you can be real about those struggles and you don't have to pretend that you hear a promise and you believe it instantly because the journey involves what we see Abraham and Sarah struggling with. But I have other really big hopes for you and for this community, hopes that you would have moments of joyful laughter, that in the midst of whatever struggles you're going through, that the good news would just break through the beauty of who God is, so the beauty of what God has done in Jesus, the beauty of what God is continuing to do by His Spirit in your life and in this community and the world, the beauty of what God is going to do when Jesus returns to make all things new that that would break through and that you would find joy. Actually, that's a promise as well that God gives to those whom he loves. And the playwright Wilson Misner once said that I can usually judge a fellow by what he laughs at. Well, it's a good thing God doesn't judge us that way. And it's a good thing he didn't judge Abraham and Sarah that way because their story would have ended there. But their story didn't end there. Um, God remained faithful. He loved them. He was patient. And then they were able to experience joyful laughter. So it wasn't the end of their story. And if you belong to Jesus, that is not going to be, be the end of your story. 
your story will not end with scoffing. The promise is your story will end in laughter, laughter that ripples into eternity, which is hard to imagine, but that's the promise. It's a wonderful promise, and it breaks into the present in moments, and we need to cling to those moments and celebrate them. And one of the moments, one of the ways that we celebrate the, the breaking of that future into the present is by celebrating communion together, taking little bits of, of bread and wine and saying, this is reality, and this is the reality we, we want to live by. So we're going to do that in a, four, in, in a few minutes, but before I move there, I want us to remember what actually happened to Jesus. So just at the very end, I mean, as after Jesus had been betrayed and arrested, and he was moving toward that horrible moment of crucifixion. So he was passing through the, the crowds and getting spit on. People were laughing at him. People were scoffing at him with everything they could muster. Crowds and soldiers putting a robe on him, jamming thorns into his head and saying, ha, lucky you, king of the Jews. Where's your power now? What are you going to do now, big man? Scoffing. And he endured all of that. And he endured the pain of crucifixion to bring salvation and to bring hope to scoffers like you and me. Because let's be honest, if I was there, I probably would have done exactly the same thing. If you were there, I mean, who's to say you would have been any different? And Jesus sacrificed himself so that that doesn't have to be the end of our story, so that being scoffers isn't what defines us. Jesus has given us salvation and hope. So we remember that sacrifice, what he endured, and we celebrate the the co-union we have with God because of that sacrifice and the union we have with each other in him. So we're remembering and celebrating that that. Jesus' death and resurrection, that, that's the reality that has the power to, to turn all of our incredulous laughter into joyful laughter. And we're going to do it together because when Jesus was having the last meal with his friends, it was a really simple meal on Passover evening. And he took a loaf of bread and he broke it in front of them and he said, friends, this is my body. So do this in remembrance of me that sacrifice that is coming. And he took a cup and he poured it out and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Celebrate this. So if you know Jesus is for you, if you're someone who says, I believe, help my unbelief, this is for you. This remembrance and the celebration is for you. So please join us. And the way it's going to work is this. We're going to circle up into groups. It's a way that we just practically see and experience the kind of union we have because of who Jesus is. We're going to circle up into groups and someone will lead, uh, walk around with some bread. You can take off a little bit of bread and then they'll walk around with a cup. You can dip that in the cup and hold that until everyone in your group has it. And then we'll pray and we'll celebrate together. Because this union, despite all of our diversity and all of our differences, is what our reconciliation with the Father through Jesus is all about.
So before we do that, I'm going to pray. I just ask the servers to come up, and I'll serve them first, and then we'll disperse to various parts of the room. There will be gluten-free stations in the back if you need that. So let's pray together. For the times that we've scoffed, for the times that we've been scoffed at, Jesus, we claim your healing and your forgiveness and your freedom. For times that we've lied to each other or been lied to, Jesus, we rest in your truth and your faithfulness. For the times that we've been betrayed by someone, one of our friends, and the times when we've been betrayed, Jesus, we stand amazed at your betrayal on our behalf. You would endure that for us. For the times we've spoken and we should have kept our mouths shut, for the times when we've kept our mouths shut and we should have said something, Jesus, thank you for your words that were true. Thank you for your silence on the cross in the midst of all of that scoffing, which is our salvation. Um, for the times that we've overlooked those in need or have been overlooked, Jesus, we praise you for your compassion, for being with us and for embracing us in our need. And we praise you, Jesus, that because of you, we have everything that we need. You've freed us for joy. You've freed us for life. You've freed us for generosity. You've freed us for hospitality. We celebrate you and we celebrate the freedom that you bring. In your name, amen. Why don't you stand with me? So if, if you've laughed at God, if you've laughed at the things of God, I want you to leave here knowing that God is patient with you. He will wait. His promises aren't going to change. So I want to read one of those promises for our benediction from the prophet Isaiah. So receive this benediction. Pay close attention now. I'm creating a new heavens and a new earth. All the earlier troubles, chaos, pain will be things of the past, forgotten. So look ahead with joy. Anticipate what I'm creating. No more long shadow and lots of laughter. Go in grace. Hey. So I missed something. We want to turn this into a toy store and we want your help. Stack eight chairs before you go. Stacks of eight.